millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, December 1st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, it's World AIDS Day. Doctors want Mississippians to know their status and seek treatment if they're positive. Then we speak with an advocate about what criminal justice and economic reforms they'd like to see lawmakers pass during the next legislative session. Plus, Buildings, legislative buildings, and museums in Jackson will be open tonight for a candlelight tour. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. World AIDS Day honors those who have died from complications of the disease and ongoing research to find a cure. Treatment options have become more available since the AIDS epidemic began in the 1980s. But in Mississippi, it can still be difficult to get that care. In 2020, the state had the fifth highest rate of HIV diagnosis in the country at 16.2 percent, more than 5 percent above the national average, according to the CDC. Dr. Ben Brock is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and an infectious disease expert. He tells our Michael Guidry around 13 percent of people with AIDS don't know they have it. We still do not have a vaccine and we do not have a cure. Those are the two big things that are left. Um, The other questions that remain are how to effectively engage patients um, so that they stay in HIV care, um, how to get medicines to people, um, certain populations. And so uh, those are more kind of qualitative studies that are being done to Uh, optimize medical care and um, public health for um, people with HIV or people at risk of HIV. But the expected longevity of somebody with HIV who gets diagnosed early, gets started on therapy early and stays on it for life now, the general opinion of experts across the world uh, is that HIV will probably not even impact their longevity by much or at all, which is really empowering. We have long-acting injectable antiretroviral therapy now. So for the last couple of years, uh, many patients have switched over to getting a shot every two months instead of having to take pills, which is really empowering. It frees people up from having to deal with the stigma of picking up HIV medicines from the pharmacy or having to deal with the anxiety of, did I miss a dose? Um, So that's been a a big game changer. And there are some more long-acting therapies down the pipeline 
PrEP is extremely effective, as is PEP. PEP is where you, if you have an exposure, you take medicines, but PrEP is ideal for people who are at risk of HIV to either take a pill a day or now they can get a shot every two months as well. Access is the biggest issue with PrEP. We still have a number of people who are who are young, um, otherwise healthy, and would have been PrEP candidates who um, didn't know about PrEP or decided not to take it. And um, so I would say that the biggest thing that needs to change is, you know, universal access to health care, improving our health care uh, infrastructure so that every Mississippian has uh, access to quality primary care and preventive services close to home, um, that would be the biggest thing to move the needle in, in decreasing new cases. At what point did the breakthrough come where, you know, and, and, and what, what sparked that breakthrough that allowed this, that they gave this community a, a chance at life with living with this disease? Yeah, 1996 combination antiretroviral therapy came out uh, for, for a couple of years there. They looked at, you know, single therapy with things like AZT, uh, but the comp, when protease inhibitors hit the market in 1996, that was when the big game changer happened. We had combination therapy. And uh, if you look at national numbers, the rates of deaths from uh, complications of HIV just really plummeted uh, the following year. The problem with rural America and with places like Mississippi is that we did not enjoy the benefits of um, that therapy uh, compared to more urban areas or affluent places. And so um, big disparities, you know, emerged almost immediately where people from the U.S. Southeast, um, racial and ethnic minorities, um, did not, and, and you know, people who were impoverished uh, did not enjoy those benefits to the degree that um, you know affluent white gay men from San Francisco enjoyed. You know, and so uh, we continued to have you know among the worst rates in the United States for um, HIV-related deaths, new HIV cases, um, even today, and um, it doesn't have to happen. But even in Mississippi with the federal Ryan White program, people are unaware of that. There's still a lot of stigma out there that prevents people from, you know, seeking screening or seeking care. You know, we have an unacceptable percentage of people with HIV who are not in care currently um, who know they have HIV still. And um, Ryan White clinics are few and far between. So if you live in a rural, rural area, you most likely do not have an HIV clinic in your county, and you may have to drive several counties over. Getting into accessible care and at-risk populations, what populations remain at risk? And elaborate a little bit more on the barriers to access for, for those communities, especially in a place like Mississippi, whether that access are medical, uh, infrastructure, or, or cultural. Yes. You mentioned stigma. Stigma is still pervasive. People with HIV and um, sexual and gender minorities like gay men and transgender women uh, may be doubly stigmatized if they're HIV positive. You know, there's there's a lot of stigma out there for being HIV positive still. There's a lot of misunderstanding about HIV transmission risks. You know, um, HIV is really not transmitted through routine day-to-day contact, and um, it's, it's actually fairly hard to transmit from person to person. And so, you know, friends... Uh, family members, they're not at risk of contracting HIV from their loved ones. Um, all that is a barrier to care. 
Um, people are not going to seek care if they're um, concerned about their uh, being their confidentiality being breached. Um, disclosure. Uh, other barriers to care are many for a person with HIV. You know, medical transportation is a need. Medicaid provides transportation, but you know they'll only provide a few rides a year. So if you have a one hour or 90 minute commute to your HIV clinic because there aren't very many of them and there's not an assistance service to pay for it. You know, you've got a Affordable Care Act plan or some other commercial insurance that doesn't pay for medical transportation. <laughs> that may be prohibitively expensive. Telehealth is really promising, but without, uh, it's a laboratory-based field. And so you really need some way to be able to collect labs. So telehealth is challenging with HIV care, but can be done wide swaths of uninsured patients and just the way that our insurance programs are set up if you know outside of Medicaid if you have commercial insurance uh, you have to meet deductibles before pharmacy or medical deductibles before you know insurance will pay anything and medical care is expensive labs are expensive the medicines are expensive and then there's a hierarchy of needs and so you know, taking a holistic approach to HIV care um, if you have somebody who has food insecurity, housing instability, childcare needs, their health is way lower priority. So if you're not meeting those needs, then um, you're not going to have people effectively taking care of their chronic illnesses. All right. Well, Dr. Ben Brock with you with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you uh, so much for, for, for taking your time to speak with us uh, on World AIDS Day. Oh, my pleasure. Coming up, when lawmakers return to the Capitol next month, advocates hope to see bills that could improve the state's criminal justice system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. At Mississippi Public Broadcasting, we tell local stories that matter. Educational and entertaining television, radio, news, and podcasts, we have something for everyone. So tune in and enjoy all we have to offer every day. MPB, your stories, our mission. Workweek ends with local programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, all aspects of gardening are discussed on the Gestalt Gardener. Next Stop Mississippi highlights events taking place around the state at 10. At 11, explore women's health on Southern Remedy for Women. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. Happy Holidays from Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi lawmakers expected to continue discussions on how to reduce incarceration rates in the upcoming legislative session in January. The state has the highest number of people in prison per capita, according to the World Population Review, which provides data on a range of issues. Grant Callen is with Empower Mississippi, an organization that advocates for policy changes in education, 
criminal justice, and work opportunities. He says next year, lawmakers should consider ways to help reduce prison populations and help transition those who are moving back into society so they're ready and have skills to improve their lives. We care deeply about having a fair and equitable justice system, and we're focused on two overarching goals. We want to see less crime, and we also want to see fewer people behind bars. And at times, these are counterintuitive ideas where some people might think, well, the only way to have less crime is to lock up more people. And we, we reject that idea, and there's lots of evidence that shows that what we need to do is make sure the right people are locked up. But for people that have – simply have addiction issues or nonviolent offenses, sometimes incarceration is uh, counterproductive. And it ought to be a last resort instead of the first resort. So we have worked for a number of years to pass smart on crime approaches that utilize things like drug court and treatment and and other ways of keeping our community safe that don't always involve incarceration. So this coming session, there's a couple of priorities. One is there's a parole bill that we worked on that took a couple of years to pass. And ultimately was signed into law by the governor in 2021. That bill is up for renewal this year, and we, we want to see that bill renewed. We're also going to be focused on transitional housing. There's a number of people that are sitting in prison today who have been granted parole, but because there's they don't have a place to live, they don't have transitional housing, they have not been released from, from prison. And it's an enormously costly, as you know, to care for somebody behind bars. It's about $20,000 a year, and it would be a lot cheaper for us to help fund or ensure there was adequate transitional housing so they, we wouldn't have to keep them behind bars, and they could be rebuilding their lives out in society. So are you so talking are- about re- refurbishing existing buildings or building buildings? Well, so there are already organizations that do transitional housing, and there's efforts that are supported by the Department of Corrections to help that. So I think it's a combination of utilizing and expanding existing programs to make sure they have the resources to serve as many people as possible because it's cheaper to serve somebody who's out on parole than to keep them in prison. Okay. Touching on work, what do you want to see there? So one of our top priorities in the workspace is we want to expand the Fresh Start Act, and this is a proposal that was passed a few years ago to open new pathways for people coming out of prison to find work. So Mississippi has something like 60 professions that require an occupational license to do that kind of work, and many of those have a blanket prohibition on anybody uh, holding that license if they have a felony conviction. And it is our belief that it's in all of our best interest that when people come out of prison, even if they have a felony conviction, that they have an opportunity to work. We want to eliminate this blanket prohibition on those licensors just because you have a, a felony conviction and would rather say, let's let's make sure if we're going to bar somebody from working in a particular profession because of 
their conviction, let's make sure their conviction was re- related to the work they want to do. There are, there are certain professions where you shouldn't be able to hold that license because you committed a crime related to that license. You've lost the privilege of doing that work. However, there's a lot of other professions where it's, it would be a great opportunity for you to find a job, help rebuild your life. But we've got this blanket prohibition on those with felony convictions. So we'd like to, to lift that. That's a key priority. Another priority under work is expanding the scope of practice, possibility for nurse practitioners. Currently in Mississippi, Mississippi is one of only a handful of states that do not allow nurse practitioners to practice to the full extent of their training. They have to work underneath a physician in a collaborative agreement. And there are obviously differences between nurses and doctors, and nurses, uh, they shouldn't be considered equal to a doctor, but there's plenty of things that nurses are trained to do that we think they ought to have permission to do in Mississippi. And so we'd like to see expanded scope of practice for nurse practitioners in the coming session. I like to get your thoughts on Mississippi is focusing on expanding workforce development so that folks are trained for higher paying jobs and drawing those jobs to the state. Do you think there needs to be attention on more high tech jobs trying to bring in companies that are Fortune 500, that type of thing? When I talk to business leaders across the state, the number one challenge they constantly point to that holds their company back from growing is the lack of a qualified, educated workforce. So we have, a, we have big challenges in this space. I'm encouraged that I think the state is moving in the right direction. Governor Reeves has made this a key priority. Others have worked on it for a number of years to improve our workforce. Um, But part of that starts with our K-12 education system, making sure that we give every child access to a great school. Uh, I think part of that is school choice policies. But part of that is also making sure we don't push – every child to go to college when there are plenty of high-paying, quality jobs that do not require a college degree. And for a number of years, our K-12 education system has disproportionately focused on helping kids get to college instead of giving kids pathways to, to multiple career paths, whether that requires a college degree or not. And so I'm encouraged that there are districts that are trying to think differently about that and give kids an opportunity to to do uh, career and technical education. Uh, There are a number of districts that are focused on um, helping kids learn to create a skill. You might it might on the coast. There's some schools that are focused on helping kids learn how to weld and do electrical and engineering and things that uh, are important for shipbuilding, for instance. So yeah, I think that's I think that's really critical to making sure the next generation of kids have the skills they need to find and and keep great jobs and stay here in the Magnolia State. Grant Callen, founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi, thank you so much for spending this time with us talking about your objectives for the upcoming legislative session and your organization's goals. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
Coming up, legislative buildings and museums in Jackson open tonight for a candlelight tour. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, y'all, join me, Felder Rushing, host of the Gestalt Gardener. And me, Kamel King, host of Next Stop Mississippi. Live at the 47th Annual Chimneyville Arts Festival, December the 1st from 9 till 11 a.m. At the Bill Waller Mississippi Craft Center in Ridgeland for the merriest shopping event of the holiday season. Each December, the Chimneyville Arts Festival celebrates with a fantastic showing of Mississippi's artisans' fine crafts. Tune in December 1st only on MPB Think Radio. At Mississippi Public Broadcasting, we tell local stories that matter. Educational and entertaining television, radio, news, and podcasts, we have something for everyone. So tune in and enjoy all we have to offer. Every day, MPB, your stories, our mission. Our goal at Everyday Tech is to keep your technology not only working, but working for you. I'm the host, Abram Nanny, and you can join me and my friends Wednesday mornings at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Or search Everyday Tech on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. Good morning. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Several museums and state buildings will be open to the public tonight in Jackson for a candlelight tour. It's an event hosted by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. The event spans the two Mississippi museums, the new and old state capitol buildings, and the governor's mansion. In addition to the tours, there will be live music, gift shops, and some unique exhibits. Our Kobe Vance speaks with the agency's spokesperson, Sarah Warnock, about the event. Christmas by Candlelight Tour is a pretty long-standing tradition now that the Mississippi Department of Archives and History has been hosting, and it's a wonderful family event, family-centric event, to kick off the holiday season. This year, we're going to have it Friday, December 1st in the evening from 4 to 8 p.m. We'll have live music, holiday decorations, treats for the young and old. We're going to have our well-known Possum Ridge model train exhibit opening that day as well. And actually, we're going to have a, a bit of shopping available to visitors and holiday uh, festival goers. So this year, of course, we will have several stops along the tour, and the public is can come and join us and take free public buses that will run along a route from the Mississippi Museums, to the Governor's Mansion, to the State Capitol, to the Old Capitol Museum. And folks are welcome to come and hop on those buses and come and go as they like, and the buses will run until 8 p.m. Now, going back to something you mentioned earlier, Possum Ridge, what is that? Possum Ridge is a model train exhibit of the town Possum Ridge, more than 40 years, this is a model train exhibit that has been a MDH holiday tradition. It's something that children and adults love to come and see. It's a detailed train town, model train town that began as a downtown block of a few buildings, and now it's multiple towns that uh, the trains circle. And it's grown to include a depot, church, barbershop, ice house, sawmill, cotton gin, train yard, 
Um, there's even a cemetery scene. It's pretty spectacular. How do you see this Candlelight's tour being a part of the bigger mission of archives and history and preserving, but also promoting the state's history and culture? Well, I think it's a wonderful way for archives and history to show how invested we are as an agency in sharing our state's history. It's its ability for us to show the kind of work that we do, but also participate and draw people to downtown to see the wonderful things that are going on in downtown Jackson in collaboration with the city of Jackson, downtown Jackson Partners, and um, City with Soul. Uh, it's a way for us to show that uh, the state is invested in uh, making sure that uh, we have these assets uh, that they remain accessible to everyone and that they can enjoy them. Well, I believe that answers all my questions. Uh, I'll do a quick outro right quick. Um, Sarah Warnock is a spokesperson with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.